some bad language, please reframe that as you need. with words. 
We gather as a liberal religious community, seeking to respect and include all who come through our doors. In this community, like in most Unitarian Universalist congregations I've been a part of, we like to spend a lot of time focusing on our similarities, our common covenant to be with one another, our common humanity, our common understanding that as humans, we have both the power and the responsibility to make the world a better place. It's good that we have so much in common, and you won't find me arguing with any of that. And yet, because as Unitarian Universalists, we refuse to say that there is only one right way of looking at the world, one right way of believing, we gather in community despite some pretty dramatic differences with each other. Differences in theology, differences in life experience and background that make us look at the world with unique lenses, differences in political philosophy, just to name a few. Thus, it is inevitable from time to time that personalities will clash, opinions will differ, and our trust in one another will be challenged. In every community, there will be conflict. In every community, there will be times of anxiety and fear. How we deal with these times is vital to our survival and health as a religious institution. It takes both courage and commitment to push through these times, to find a way to live together, to find a way to make those conflicts constructive rather than destructive. We can and must find that courage and that commitment together. First, we must understand that we live in a world of systems. Our congregation is a system. No part of it exists in isolation. And in this system, we need one another to survive. I don't think putting it that way is being melodramatic. I truly believe that we need each other, or at least we need to learn how to need each other. I was inspired to address this topic after hearing the song offered to us by our choir early last year. In fact, the very week after I first visited with the search committee from this congregation, I invite you to consider some of the words in it for a minute. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's light. Stand with me. Agree with me. We're all a part of God's light. You are important to me. I need you to survive. I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need you to survive. You are important to me. I need you to survive. And while we can have a spirited debate about what's, what God's will really is, or even if there really is such a thing, we are faced with the reality that on this morning we have come together as a community of people who are important to one another. We are faced with the reality that we need each other to survive. And because of that, we've come together in a complex system of actions and reactions, a system that takes some intention for us to get right. An important part of systems theory is that change and anxiety go together. There is no such thing 
as an anxiety-free change. I'm well aware, for example, that every time a new minister enters a congregation, the change in leadership and perspective and personality causes anxiety. When any congregation, no matter how healthy or well-intentioned, has to deal with changes like these on a regular basis, as this congregation has for the past decade or so, it becomes even more important to understand how our anxiety is being played out in the relationships we have with one another. And even when most everyone is excited at the arrival of a particular new minister, as folks around here have been these past few months, and I'm very grateful for that, the change still brings anxiety. And anxiety in a system needs to be managed. Note that I said managed, not eliminated. Anxiety is not in and of itself a bad thing. Unchecked anxiety, however, is. On the one hand, a system that spends all of its time reacting to the most anxiety it has is unhealthy. But on the other hand, a system with no anxiety at all is dead. The same can be said of our lives and our families. Too much tension is never a good thing, but too little, and we hardly have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And of course, this is the time of year that provokes anxiety in many of us. I know, for example, that my visit to Home Depot last week to buy some Christmas lights had me hyperventilating within 15 <laughs> minutes. So in our congregation, as in our lives, we need to learn to manage anxiety. But how do we deal with and manage anxiety in a healthy way? Today I offer you three things that our congregation can do to manage our anxiety as a group. All three, I hope, are things that you can also do in your own personal life. First, we must, as a congregation, focus on our mission and our vision. What are the core values our congregation comes together to support? And how do we live those values out there in the world? Starting in the new year, we will be spending a lot of time thinking about those questions. We will all be invited to special startup conversation on February 9th designed to help focus my ministry. Our committee on ministry will be sponsoring conversations. I'll even be preaching a special three-part sermon series. And our board and our finance committee will be creating different ways in which each of us can map out these things for our fellowship, our mission, and our vision and how we live those things out in the world. All of those conversations will have as their central goal focusing us on the reason we come together as a community and developing together a common vision for the future. Every single one of them is an opportunity to become energized, to express your concerns, to reduce your anxiety about what might come next for our fellowship. In your homes and families, you can do this too. You can focus on the meaning of family. You can focus in your life on what your most deeply held values are. By living in your life outside of these walls from your most deeply held values, you reduce the dissonance in your life that happens when you try to do something that's different from those values. The second way we can manage anxiety is by working together to develop practices of deep listening. 
Over the past year, this fellowship has been introduced to one philosophy that helps us do this with one another, the tenets of nonviolent communication, also called compassionate communication, ask us to listen with open hearts and minds. They ask us to speak from our own needs and feelings. As described in the website for the Center for Nonviolent Communication, we are trained to make careful observations free of evaluation and to specify behaviors and conditions that are affecting us. We learn to hear our own deeper needs and those of others, and to identify and clearly articulate what we are wanting in a given moment. When we focus on clarifying what is being observed, felt, and needed, rather than on diagnosing and judging, we discover the depth of our own compassion. Through its emphasis on deep listening to ourselves as well as others, nonviolent communication fosters respect, attentiveness, and empathy, and engenders a mutual desire to give from the heart. The form is simple, yet powerfully transformative. We will be revisiting compassionate communication in the new year as well. In the meantime, we can all learn to listen deeply to our own needs and feelings, as well as to the needs and feelings of others, and in doing so, become more compassionate and less anxious. The last way to manage anxiety in our congregation and in our lives is by cultivating in our midst what is called the non-anxious presence. This is easier than it sounds, and I admit it maybe not doesn't sound so easy. Being a non-anxious presence is hard, but it's worth it. It requires that sometimes we just sit and hear what is going on around us. Rather than giving in to the tendency we all have to react to everything around us, sometimes we just need to hear. Rather than being swept up in a swirling spiral of heightening anxiety, of action and reaction and further reaction, sometimes we have to short-circuit that spiral and by stopping ourselves from contributing to it. The practice of deep listening is the first step. The practice of non-reactivity, though, is needed as well. Margaret Kornfeld, in the reading we heard earlier, quoted from the Tao Te Ching, in which it is written, do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and your water becomes clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? Do you have that patience? Do you have the courage and commitment to learn a new way of being with one another? Do you have the courage and commitment to admit that you need someone else? and in doing so, open yourself up to a new way of being. It has been said that courage is the ability to feel fear and anxiety and act despite it. The artist Georgia O'Keeffe famously said in one of my favorite quotes, I have been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I have never let it stop me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. Eleanor Roosevelt, on the same topic, once said, You gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You must do the thing 
which you think you cannot do. It takes courage to try on a new way of being with one another, a less anxious way. It takes courage not to react when someone is pushing your every button. But courage is not always easy to come by. To act despite one's fears goes against all that fear represents. This is why the key to courage in my experience has always been trust. Trust that if I take a calculated risk, things will be okay. My friend Bob once described his enormous courage in making a dramatic career change as falling naked on the universe and trusting that it will catch me. That's a lot of what taking a risk is, isn't it? Trusting that no matter how big the leap is, the landing will be soft. Trusting that the universe, your god or goddess, your family, or your community of supportive friends and loved ones will be watching out for you as you step into the unknown. And trust in a community of faith takes commitment. A commitment to sit with one another through difficulty. A commitment to being in relationship with one another even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. A commitment to behave in ways that let the world know that we mean what we say when we speak of the undivided human family. A commitment to being part of this fellowship. Conflict and anxiety are not in and of themselves bad things. Both of them can lead to productive change. They can challenge us to live up to our principles, to remember our most deeply held values. They can help us create a common vision for the future. In order to see the good sides of conflict and anxiety, we are faced with several challenges, though. We are challenged in our community as well as in our personal lives to sit with conflict, to summon all of our courage and strength to do our best not to react to places of high anxiety. We are challenged in our community as well as in our personal lives not to make conflict personal. We can disagree without attacking. We can engage each other over areas of differing vision without making things unsafe for one another. We are challenged in our community as well as in our personal lives to be open, honest, and direct with one another, but to do that with compassion and empathy. It serves us no good to go behind one another's backs or to bury our disagreements right below the surface, just waiting to erupt. All of these things take pushing through our resistance to conflict. It takes a lot of courage to tell someone your problem with them instead of telling someone else. It takes a lot of commitment to change the way we react to something for the good of an entire community. Today, I ask each of you here for that commitment, the commitment to understanding that we need one another to survive. Together, we can nurture one another. We can stand with one another. We can challenge one another. And we can give each other the strength the courage and the commitment to do this thing called Unitarian Universalism 
this thing called fellowship, this thing called community, to do them well. May it be so. In a moment, we will receive our offering. As with every Sunday in November and December, the collection we take in our offering will be split between the many ministries of this fellowship and the Mount Kisco Emergency Homeless Shelter Project. We will be hosting the homeless here in this congregation from December 30th to January 6th. I invite you to speak with Joe Simonetti or Linda McNeil if you're interested in helping with that project. Love of mine, someday you will die But I'll be close behind They'll follow you into the dark No blinding light Or tunnels to gates of white Just our hands clasped so tight Waiting for the hint of a spark If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks then I'll follow you into the dark in Catholic school as vicious as Roman rule I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black And I held my tongue as she told me, son Fear is the heart of love, so I never went back And if heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied Illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark Is the custom around here we have a few minutes for you to share any reflections that have come to you in the midst of this service if something has resonated with you in your own personal or spiritual life, I invite you to uh, raise your hand and Marion will uh, take you the microphone for your sharing. 